Howdy, folks. You are listening to the Texas Order podcast. I'm drinking eight balls. Nick snorting high balls. Connor is calling balls and strikes. And our podcast manager, Candace, who does not have balls, is nonetheless the bell of the ball today. We have been long absent from the airwaves due to various bits of laziness. Uh, and we are back now. We are back with the Whenever We Produce It Texas Order podcast, uh, where you get to listen to myself and my co-host, Connor, um, and frequent guest, Nick Romano. Um, I'm going to go around the room and just give y'all a sense of the recurring cast of characters. Connor, why don't you give yourself a little bit of an intro? Um, so I'm Connor. I'm a senior here at UT. I uh, just joined up with the orator. Um, was really trying to push for this podcast for a while, but you know, it's good to see that we're finally getting to it. Um, just to talk about the issues out there. Yeah. Well, you know, when, uh, when I'm not drunk, I'm doing a lot of things. Uh, and this has finally gotten back on the slate. Um, so hopefully we will bring this to you every week or so. Nick, who y'all can't see because this is an audio broadcast is in a quarantine plastic cordon off area because he has been traveling in China. Nick, why don't you give a bit of account of yourself and your travels? Well, I'm about eight months removed from my, my time in China. So, um, no, no quarantine for me right now. Um, I will update you guys if things change. Um, but no, I spent the last summer in China, uh, doing a language immersion program. I am a, um, undergrad fellow at the Clement Center. I study a lot of national security, and uh, my thoughts and feelings on foreign policy issues have been on the Texas Order website for some time now, and I am back to put my (laughs) foreign policy expertise to use on these airwaves. Yeah, so if y'all hear an alarm going off, uh, that will be Nick breaking out of his quarantine, in which case we're all probably gone for because of the coronavirus, which is what we are going to be talking about the first segment today. Nick, when you were traveling around in China, did you get any sense of the kind of broad status of the public health apparatus, the strength of the public health system in in China, and what are your kind of sense of how China is going to be responding to this virus? Right. So China actually has a pretty strong public health system. Within uh, 72 hours of arriving in China uh, as a long-term foreign visitor, I had to go to a international travel clinic to have a pretty thorough um, health exam done, uh, blood test, urine test, ultrasound, um, pretty 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 extensive um, check to make sure that I wasn't introducing anything to China. Um, but there there's multiple. China will be um, pretty predisposed to these sorts of issues just because of there's a lot of very highly high population, high density cities that um, don't always have the best infrastructure in terms of um, public sanitation and hygiene. Um, so that's something to to think about when you're when we assess these situations. Is they might um, th- the virus might spread a little bit faster than we would expect because there's not the same um, infrastructure that we're used to in the West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, Connor, what is your sense of how concerned Americans should be for this outbreak and this outbreak traveling? I know we've got a much more globalized, much more urbanized economy now, and that, I think, 
can play both ways. So how do you see those two factors interacting with the spread of this disease? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, again, we, we've we had increased travel, I mean, obviously with planes and stuff like that, um, and just a more increased economy. I would, interconnected at least, I would say we should be concerned. I don't think that, I think the fact that we all are are already concerned this early is a good sign um if this had been going on for a while and we just started noticing that would be a lot more troubling but um they've already introduced travel restrictions and um they have quarantines in china um so they're taking measures to do you know to contain it and handle it now um i also think that china has been a little bit more open to admitting that there's a virus whereas you know back in 2002 with czars and stuff like that mm-hmm. um to save face, they had avoided talking about it and they had underplayed a lot of the um, figures for it. So I think that, you know, they're letting um, World Health Organization officials come in and, you know, we're already taking some measures is a pretty good sign, but that's not to say that the threat is gone. It's still going to be a threat and people should still be uh, wary. Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting that, you know, I was listening to Today Explained, which was giving a, a kind of overview of the coronavirus and the the person on there listed four really kind of main concerns, and, and two of them had to do with increased globalization, you know, both in terms of travel, but also economic, you know, connections, and increased urbanization. And she cited those as really being kind of predominant factors in, in the increasing rate of public health crises. Now, it's not that these are increasing in scale, you know, we don't have the Spanish flu uh, outbreaks like we're, we used to have, or we don't have the, the kind of just ruinous pandemics, but we do have them with more frequency or we have, you know, these, these outbreaks with more frequency. And it's interesting that that dynamic cuts both ways. You know, I, I, we're looking at exactly, as you said, China being more, much more open. In fact, you know, with the SARS outbreak, there was almost an entire month's delay before, national and international community of public health experts were able to get on top of that get the information they need in this case china within 72 hours had released the information about the outbreak of the coronavirus within six days of the release of that material they had sequenced the entire you know genomic structure of of the coronavirus i mean that's just incredible and you've got an entire connected world of of scientists working on this issue so it's going both ways there's a there's a double-edged sword in which case i i you know i don't want to get too far out on this limb but the way that we have responded makes me really really hopeful for the kind of end of history you know end of pandemics i don't want to fukuyama hasn't exactly held up so great to criticism um but you know that idea of the 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 end of pandemics i think is something that we could foresee within our lifetimes nick is that a sense that you get or am i going out too far i i I don't think we'll see the end of pandemics in our lifetimes um i think if anything it'll be more yeah it'll be more (laughs) i think in a lot of ways it'll be more difficult to um contain pandemics and i'll push back a little bit on um china's handling of this case because it's not um i we we haven't reached the end of this story and um there's a certain there's a history where there's a few years ago there was an earthquake mm-hmm. where um, China refused to really release the death count from right. this earthquake um, because it would show that the construction of these buildings 
was not up to par. It was um, it, it was uh, highly affected by corruption. Um, and so they refused to release a lot of the details about these earthquakes. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing some we're, – we're, we're seeing this very proactive response uh, right now. But my fear is that um, this is a complex problem in a high-stress environment. Someone somewhere um, – in the bureaucracy is going to drop the ball, and then China is going to have an, an incentive to cover this up to save face. Because if they, if they, their whole case is that their bureaucracy is perfectly run, expertise, and they they can't afford to to admit mistakes, or else they don't have any rationale of of the kind of high control system that they have. I mean, I <coughs> excuse me, I kind of like. I mean, I'm definitely no fan of the way the Chinese government's run. The red Chinese government. Right. I I just think that, like... Good New York Sun <laughs> reference there. Oh, my gosh. We... One of, one of the issues definitely is going to be the fact that not everyone... The quarantine has made it to where we can't exactly see who has contracted the coronavirus within, like, um, within the cities and stuff. And, uh... So one of the problems is that, right, like the people who have the coronavirus in those cities that are quarantined right now is going to go up and it's going to be a lot higher than I think any of us know officially. Um, With that being said, I don't know, like I'm not saying that they're doing it perfectly, but I do think that they have done it a little bit better, especially given the international attention to that. Whereas, you know, with a disease that could be spread among a lot of different countries compared to, you know, an earthquake in one localized area. Right. I, I don't know. I kind of think that China's doing a little bit. I mean, I'm not going to applaud them, but I think they're doing a little bit better than they have in the past. Sure. Well, and it's, you know, I, I think Americans are, are panicking a little bit like they did in Ebola. You know, PolitiFax, what was it, 2016, the outbreak? PolitiFax lie of the year was the panic about Ebola um, just because the U.S. public health system has, you know, developed and is so kind of strong and, and robust that really experts are. are not particularly concerned that coronavirus is going to you know be a, a real problem in the U.S., but exactly like y'all were saying, I mean, we don't quite have the metrics even to gauge China's response to this because they haven't released you know robust figures. I mean, we're looking their confirmed cases is somewhere near thirteen hundred, uh, resulting in forty one deaths. So that's a pretty high mortality rate if you just take that roughly three percent. Um, but we know that there are many many more perhaps orders of magnitude more numbers of unconfirmed cases um in which case you know this could be as deadly as the common flu in in some instances um if the number of unconfirmed cases continues to grow and and the problem is that there's not going to be any independent reporting Mm -hmm. we are completely reliant upon upon the government to release their numbers and if they're being totally honest then then that that's great but there's not going to be any sort of kind of investigative reporting into how these the methodology of of how they track these people, how they count these things. Um, if you know there's some deaths that they don't that they don't attribute to coronavirus, but maybe there's someone with a compromised immune mm-hmm. system and they just that they just count that death as something that's not the coronavirus. Right. Um, so there's there there's not the ability to ask these questions and really investigate, which worries me. And then a second thing is that um, 
what's really um, kind of overlooked is this uh, in Wuhan, the city where um, this virus started. Um, there's been a lot of reporting about how they've quarantined the whole city. Right. And Something like 50 million people, which is unprecedented. Yeah. What's, well, but it's also not entirely surprising to me because mm-hmm. um, what's overlooked is the lack of uh, freedom of movement internally in China. There's mm-hmm. this Chinese system called the Hukou system, which means household registration system. You're only eligible to receive um, uh, services in the place where you are registered. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people who come in from rural villages to work, but they can't receive uh, health care in these cities because they're not registered as living there. Right. And so um, that can be a huge public health crisis. But that's also the thing that allows China to turn on these quick quarantines there's no way for the u.s government to um, really if an outbreak happened in dallas there's no way for them to really shut off every road out of dallas that would just be nuts but every highway coming out of a major city in uh in china will have this kind of toll booth looking thing where they most of the time they're just counting the flow in and out and Mm. and sometimes checking buses and checking um uh shipping trucks but that there's at least the infrastructure there to be able to con- control the flow of movement, and I think that's overlooked uh, in how their the, how the political system is interacting with the uh, public health response. Right, and I want to linger on that for a moment. You know, I, I think there is some logic to the idea that because China can, you know, very quickly and almost unilaterally change on a dime the lives of 50 million people in a way that the the u.s political system just would not tolerate there's some logic to the idea that that makes them more capable of of handling this crisis but i think the the you know kind of flip edge of that coin is you know when you look at the uyghurs and i'm sure i'm butchering that pronunciation but um you look at the the history of civil rights in and you know human rights even in china there's a bit of a sense that I, I think we're going to see human rights and civil rights suffer in the response to this disease. Am I over kind of alarmist here, Nick, or is that something that you sense as well? Right. So in recent history, um, human rights abuses are um, rationalized and very in almost what we you could consider a legitimate rationalization. So uh, the repression of the Uyghurs is... Uh, rationalized as counterterrorism mm-hmm. and uh, de-radicalization. Um, and so that's something that all countries of the world have counterterrorism operations that, that look different from country to country. Um, and so th- I think there is possibility of using um, the coronavirus as a, um, a-, a as a kind of front for more malicious actions. I would also like to point out that um, the coronavirus has spread to Xinjiang, um, which is where the Uyghurs live, mm-hmm. and um, that could be a huge, huge um, catastrophe if the government chooses to not be forthcoming in um, administering medical help to um, Uyghur Muslims who may have contracted the coronavirus. Right. But I think that's something to watch in the months ahead. Yeah, and you know, this is all kind of of a piece, and I, I think that we should keep a watchful eye on. China, who is a history of using, well, catastrophes really in that exact way, the rationalization um, of, of human rights violations throughout the country, you know, in the, in the earthquake, part of the, it goes part and parcel with their hesitancy to release information because 
their response was so, you know, disregardful or treated human rights so nonchalantly in the response to that earthquake that part of the reason we couldn't get good death numbers is because some of those deaths were probably avoidable. Uh, avoidable in, in a sense that, you know, they didn't respond to the interest of minority populations in that the you know aftermath of that earthquake. Um, so we are going to stay in the region of China, and we are going to move on to the United States trade war with Hawaii. Am I pronouncing that right, Connor? No, Huawei. Huawei. That is right. So Huawei uh, is a telecom and 5G cellular network company in China. Um, the Trump administration has been broadly hostile to technology companies in China, but also Huawei specifically because of the advent of 5G technology and the potential threat that that poses to U.S. military and intelligence communication systems. Connor, could you give us a bit of a briefer on what this story is? Yeah, so, I mean, just like you said, Huawei is, a, you know, a telecommunications company in China. Um, they're specifically leading the um, innovation of 5G, um, which is this next generation of of being able to use cellular, and it's, it's just exponentially faster, um, and a lot of countries are wanting to do it. Um, China's influence so far and with that has been going to uh, underdeveloped countries that may still be on technologies before 3G and saying, hey, you know, we're going to give you 5G. We'll um, install all the all the programs and stuff and uh, we'll also give you very favorable borrowing rates um, and just make it super simple. And so if you're, you know, if you're the leader of um, a country in one of these underdeveloped countries like uh, um, somewhere in Africa or you know, in Malaysia or some of these other places, you're going to say yes. But the kind of the thing that we're going to be talking about, especially today, is um, the UK now allowing, uh, lim although limited, um, still allowing Huawei to come in with 5G into the country. Um, and so that's kind of one of these uh, things that's really worrying for the US because of uh, um, our intelligence sharing uh, groups like Five Eyes um, and, you know, these other things that if we have Huawei um, putting technology in the UK that it could affect U.S. military operations. So, and stuff. briefly explain what the security risk. I mean, I, I think we think of five G, and I'm, you know, in my head, great. You know, I'm, I, I'm more <laughs> yeah. than happy to have lightning fast, you know, mobile internet. Why are U.S. military and intelligence communities concerned about Huawei specifically in the realm of five G? Well, I have my thoughts, and I'm sure Nick's going to have his, but um, <laughs> he'll, he'll have a few things to add. But um, the thing that kind of worries me a lot and, and U.S. officials here is the fact that, um, you know, with 5G, all this traffic and all, you know, our telecommunications runs through this network, right? And since this network, Huawei has had a history of working with the Chinese government and has had almost no autonomy when it comes to being an independent business, you know, whatever beijing asks for um from huawei as far as data goes that's data from your cell phones laptops any like just affecting us or you know from military operations they can request that um so it's a really worrying thing to have that communication run through beijing um because there's just a whole host of different things that they could do with that so, Nick, you know, we discussed a little bit in Connor intro the idea that China is really offering this to companies or to, to developing countries in a way that probably doesn't make much economic sense, but might 
in a, in a kind of soft power, you know, sense. And, and they do have a history, especially, you know, communist China and the expansionist era kind of had a history of going to develop or underdeveloped countries and offering them all of this grab bag of goodies. Um, and this is kind of what led to the U.S. instituting a containment policy. So is this something that we need to have a similar reaction to, or is it kind of a live and let live situation? Right. So um, I think, so when we're talking about the threat, the threat is um, signals intelligence collection, basically mm-hmm. the ability of uh, the Chinese to intercept sensitive information that's sent between, <coughs> sent from the U.S. and any other uh, country where China has these systems in place. Uh, there's two primary narratives. One I think is closer to the truth. The first one is the first one that I don't really agree with is this kind of Trojan horse narrative that 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 Huawei is just a front for uh, Chinese espionage mm-hmm. activities. Um, it's a pretty successful front. Huawei is one of the biggest telecom providers in the world. So um, I don't really I don't necessarily. Um, totally buy into that. I think it, what's more likely of a threat is that um, in, the, in the hardware and software that these system that compromise these systems, um, they're Chinese designed, Chinese made, which means the Chinese understand all of the vulnerabilities, mm-hmm. um, all the ins and outs of the system, and it's therefore really easy for the Chinese to tap in uh, wherever they want to intercept information. Um, and then there, there's also a clause in Chinese law that stipulates that all Chinese corporations have to cooperate with the government on national security matters. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the kind of backdoor entry, I think, is concerning. Um, but I'm not, I, I'm not ready to um, start uh, declaring a, a cold war against China. Sure. I think there, um, I think there's going to have to be a balancing act, especially with. When you see um, UK adopting this for commercial purposes, mm-hmm. it's just um, it's just not going to be feasible to um, cut out every every nation that incorporates um, Chinese technology because there's been there's been Huawei devices sold in the United States for a very long mm-hmm. time, and um, you could argue that the hardware and software used in Huawei cell phones could be hacked. And exploited. And now I don't think we should be giving um, military contracts to Huawei, but I don't think anyone is. I think there's going to have to be a balance here that's struck between the U.S. and China. Otherwise, you know, we're going to have to maybe go back to pigeons or some (laughs) sort of thing that that we feel is more secure because it's just (laughs) it's just too big of a of a entanglement. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not advocating for that. I'm just my kind of my thoughts on it right is that you know one of the big things that the u.s and the international community as a whole kind of care about is is the fact that we have you know free and open sea lanes right and if we're concerned about the sea lanes i think we should also be kind of concerned about the cyber like everything on cyber as far as keeping those lanes open huawei being able to control kind of 5g in that in that realm of of cyber is kind of concerning to me because it does go through beijing in that sense and that they can request that i i i, I like some of the you know I, I was looking at some of the uk restrictions that they had and stuff against military bases and stuff not having it close there um 
But I mean, just because it's not in military bases, I still think it's a worrying technology. I mean, you saw that with TikTok where, you know, the U.S. military said U.S. soldiers on bases and stuff like that or, um, you know, other uh, intelligence officials aren't allowed to use, be using TikTok because of some data that could be um, on there. Or you kind of saw the same worry with um, – what was it that one face app thing right um about you know face uh facial recognition technology um even fitness apps like fitbits and stuff like that on military bases or um you know some of these other sensitive areas that could you know that they were basically mapping out the hallways and all that stuff in there so i mean i don't know it's still it's still a really concerning thing i'm not super like trade restrictionist on this but um i do think that We've got to be really careful when we start letting in, you know, when we start letting a country like China have a company that doesn't necessarily share our same democratic values. Well, that. it's not it's not letting in like we, like the problem. The problem is, is it's not up to the U.S. what other countries choose to to buy. It would be great if, um, you know, people only bought rice from. Uh, the Louisiana <laughs> rice patties, like that, would be awesome for the U.S. But the fact but that is, pose is a that's just threat. not. Well, it it po- poses a trade threat, which you could argue is a security threat. But the fact of the matter is, is Huawei or no Huawei, there has been um, signals intelligence collection between the U.S. and China for a very long time. There are multiple avenues, and um, you know, there, I I just I just think that overreacting to this. Um, is a good way to lose partners and allies, um, and that the U.S. should be should be careful to um, not alienate potential partners. Well, I think one thing is 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 concerning is that you know yeah we can't dictate what other countries you know the U.K. is going to make their own decisions and stuff like that. Um, as far as coming to that decision, I think is a little worrying. I mean, you're seeing that currently with Germany right now, who um, they've said, you know, China has threatened if you don't let Huawei in, if you do like a, a ban or any of these other things, and we're not going to let you put, uh, you know, Volkswagen or BMW, like all these auto, auto part um, stuff being able to have factories in China. Um, or even with these, you know, developing countries that desperately need this 5G. I get it. It's a hard argument to make for the U.S. for us to say, hey, don't get on 5G, you know, while you're still on this prior thing. Um, and, you know, to be able to update your economy and your infrastructure like that so quickly, uh, it's a really enticing decision. Um, and it's kind of a hard argument for us to make. But I think China is, you've got to look at why is China trying so hard and they're, you know, putting all these other extra things involved with it. Um, like, you know, we won't let you have factories in our country and stuff like that. You got to ask, why are they wanting to do that? And I think that asking the question why is something we should be having a conversation about and it's super worrying. Uh, that is going to move us into our last segment. And Nick, I'm actually going to get you back into here. Um, we are... I am a broad advocate of political disengagement. I think politics is in, in most instances fruitless um, force and violence. It is unhelpful. So in this last segment, we're going to disengage from politics a little bit and talk about what non-political things we have been consuming, reading, listening to, what have you. Nick, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> what have you been ingesting into your zeitgeist ear holes? I don't know. Um, I think <clears throat> the uh, um, I thinking about it, maybe I do need to disengage a bit because I am kind <laughs> of um, 
consuming all of the same thing all the time. I did see, and I mean, I think you can maybe classify it as political material, but I saw 1917, oh, the movie last night, and that was Woo. phenomenal uh, cinematography. Um, um, so I I enjoyed that and highly recommend that to any uh, military history nerd out there. Yeah, I watched that with Nick last night. <laughs> it was a good movie. Big screen? Yeah, we went to Alamo Draft House. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah no, I actually, I, <laughs> I bootlegged it on this little TV over here, and it was uh, oh my gosh. not as high quality as one could. Actually, it's funny, <laughs> like, when you bootleg it, there's this little, I don't know, like, online advertisement that pops up in the middle of, like, the most dramatic scene. This, like, pinata dropped from the top of the, the <laughs> screen and just, like... Oh, gambling. It was just, anyways. Oh boy. But I highly recommend that movie. Um yeah. if you want to pair it like a fine wine with cheese, I would suggest the Dan Carlin Hardcore History podcast. Um the blueprint for Armageddon might be the best audio ever. I mean, obviously accepting the Texas Order podcast, which is just Of course. phenomenal. <laughs> Um, but like, I, I comment subscribe. But yeah. Dan Carlin's chronicling of World War One is just—I I listen to it every year. I make a point to block out my time, and it is just phenomenal. It's a pretty long slog, um, <laughs> something like twenty hours of audio. Uh, but if you are ever looking for a podcast, or if you've just got you know nothing going on, I highly suggest watching 1917 after. It's like the the little treat you get after you study. Um, you listen to Dan Carlin, watch 1917. Sounds like my perfect weekend. Does uh does reading the uh, sports section of New York Times count as non political? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'll take it. I mean, I was. Are you I was are you mourning up, so. Kobe or is that? Uh, who isn't? Are you not? Oof. <laughs> I've already cr- ended my career once, so I'm not going to do that. But no, I I I'm, don't watch sports at all. Um, I understand the impact that Kobe has had. I don't, I don't get the concept of like a a sports hero impacting people as much because I just don't watch sports. But I I my buddy actually put it in good terms. He's like, what if Willis Allen Ramsey or Coulter Wall or one of your favorite like country music singers died, and that started to hit me. So I. I uh, commiserate i sympathize with those who are mourning kobe i think you just made a lot of our listeners understand now yeah exactly <laughs> right yeah, yeah. Uh, you know oh me well gosh. so is that what you've been consuming the sports section sure yeah okay. i mean all right a lot, i mean yeah nba just in general too dallas Mavs are actually starting to do well now so well i have been consuming my spotify end of year playlist just absolutely voraciously i don't know if y'all use spotify but I want to kind of tie it in. I, I know we said non-political here. Let's tie it in. Um, but I've been thinking a lot about the the pace of change in the 21st century and the idea that, you know, you look at a, a trend line or a graph line of, of technological change, for 200 years it's flat. You know, for mm-hmm. before the, the Industrial Revolution it's flat. And I want to suggest that, you know, when I was 10, the best way to have choice in your music selection was to download songs from YouTube and throw them into your iTunes playlist versus now Spotify has brought, I mean, the music of the world to our fingertips and it makes me hopeful. Yeah. Well, okay. (laughs) I mean, for those of us who are a little more technologically advanced, LimeWire or BitTorrent or whatever. um, (laughs) Well, we're, we're getting a little off track. We're getting a little off track. Our manager, Candace is rolling her eyes. Oh, I know. Yeah. Um, Telling us to wrap it up. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, what I'll end with is is it makes me hopeful that the fact that 
technology is changing so quickly and, and it, 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 you can see it change before your eyes mm-hmm. will make people more appreciative of technological change, of the way that capitalism and of the way that free markets allows technological change. <laughs> Candace is going to kill me if I don't stop here. <laughs> so that is going to be the end of our hour. We will see you back hopefully next Sunday where we will have myself and Connor and some more members of the order. Cue outro music. Yeah, cue outro music here. Um, It has been a delight, and we will see you next week. Thank you all.